All right, thanks, Pastor Jeff. If you have your Bibles, you turn with me to the book of Acts. Acts chapter 1 will be in verses 1 to 11. Acts chapter 1, verses 1 to 11. If you need a Bible, there are some under the seat in front of you. And so you can get one there. So if you're unfamiliar with our church, the way that many churches do it, we often preach right through consecutively a book of the Bible. And so we, this summer, um, continued a series in Psalms. We do 10 Psalms a summer. And now we're going to begin a new series out of the book of Acts. And uh, so we will be here, and then next week we'll take verses 12 to the end of the chapter 1. And I typically take smaller chunks, but in Acts, I'm going to take larger kind of whole story chunks. What do I mean there? Well, let's say chapter 2. Chapter 2 itself is one entire section in the beginning of chapter 3. It begins with the word now. It kind of changes scenes, if you will. And so typically, if I were preaching chapter 2, we might do three or four or five sermons out of chapter 2. I'm just going to do one. I'm going to try to do each sermon an entire complete portion. Um, If you care about those kind of things, now you know. If you don't, so what? what, Why am I preaching out of Acts? Well, uh, several years ago, actually, one of our students asked me to preach out of Acts. And so I kind of had it on the radar, and this is probably three, four, five years ago. And so I'm, I'm trying to make good on that request. Uh, I am on Tuesdays at noon on YouTube doing a, a course on church history, beginning with Acts through modern times. I thought it would be beneficial to look at the history of how the church got established in the book of Acts while doing that course. And then mainly, though, is to teach us to love the church. That's the main reason. By saying that, I don't mean that you hate the church, but... I think we are often tempted to consider the church less important than many other realities that are actually of less importance than the church. And here we're going to see in the book of Acts, the beginnings of the church. There are several books in the Bible that are about beginnings. Of course, Genesis. Uh, Exodus is the establishment of God's people there in the Old Testament. And now here we have the beginnings of the church of Jesus Christ, which has been promised since of all that you'll see, and I find it rather exciting, but mainly what we're going to see is God's unswerving love for the church and building her upon the foundation of Christ's death and resurrection and the sending out of the apostles and many others to preach the gospel in all the world to establish and build his church. And so God loves his church. That's what I hope you gain throughout this, that the church is built on Christ, by God's power, and the church is made of sinners saved by the life, death, burial, resurrection, ascension, and reign of Jesus Christ, and, and that God loves his church. And so that's going to be the point of the series over and over again. We are his witnesses, and he sends us to the world with his gospel. Let me read uh, Acts 1, 1 to 11, pray, and then give you a bit more background of the book. In the first book, O Theophilus, I have dealt with all that Jesus began to do and to teach until the day when he was taken up after he had given commands through the Holy Spirit to the apostles whom he had chosen. 
He presented himself alive to them after his suffering by many proofs, appearing to them during 40 days and speaking about the kingdom of God. And while staying with them, he ordered them not to depart from Jerusalem, but to wait for the promise of the Father, which he said, you heard from me. For John baptized with water, but you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit not many days from now. So when they had come together, they asked him, Lord, will you at this time restore the kingdom of Israel? He said to them, it is not for you to know the times or seasons the Father has fixed by his own authority, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in Judea and Samaria and to the end of the earth. And when he had said these things, as they were looking on, he was lifted up, And a cloud took him out of their sight. And while they were gazing into heaven, as he went, behold, two men stood by them in white robes and said, Men of Galilee, why do you stand looking into heaven? This Jesus, who is taken up from you into heaven, will come in the same way as you saw him go into heaven. Let's pray. Father, our souls long for your salvation. And so teach us now to hope in your word. Many are here looking for your comfort, and so would you bring them comfort? Teach us to not forget your statutes, that we may, on this earth, be witnesses of yours. And so in your steadfast love, O God, teach us to keep your testimonies. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Acts was written by Luke. This is the same author as the Gospel of Luke. In the beginning of his gospel, he mentions the same fellow that we see here in verse 1, Theophilus. Uh, We don't really know who he is, uh, who Theophilus is, that is. We know that he's some kind of a Gentile Christian, maybe yet young in his faith. He may have been a wealthy supporter of Luke's that uh, supported Luke financially as Luke did the research and writing of his gospel in this book, but we aren't sure. But anyways, he... He writes, same author of Acts as Luke's, and so Acts is, if you want to look at it like this, the, the sequel to Luke's gospel. Luke's gospel focuses on, as we see here, what Christ did and what he taught. The Acts, or the book of Acts then focuses on, after Christ's ascension, how in the power of God, by the Holy Spirit, the church was established. And so the, the title at the top of your Bible there says, the Acts of the Apostles, that, that title isn't part of what Luke wrote. It was a title added sometime after Luke, and it isn't an exactly accurate description of the book itself. Of course, it does focus on the life of the apostles, but it is much more uh, a work of focusing on what God did. The central character throughout the book of Acts is God, not the apostles. There are apostles, and there are others that God uses throughout the book in the establishing of his gospel, but it is mainly a book about the acts of God, the power of God in bringing his church. The, you might say it's the ongoing work of Jesus Christ through his Holy Spirit and the preaching of the gospel. And so this book is a book of history. It's not a complete history, but a selective one, highlighting in many different places through many different people the building of the church in Jerusalem and then Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. And so then the outline of the book, as you heard and I read, is given in verse 8. The book does begin in Jerusalem. Afterwards, it does move to Judea and Samaria. 
And then after that, it goes through all different ends of the earth um, and concludes in Rome with Paul's imprisonment. So this book then is about the church, beginning with the apostles, being Christ's witnesses to the gospel to the ends of the earth. That's what this book is for. But as the church is established, we do see it established in every known place in the uh, at that time on the earth, we see a lot of opposition to this gospel, a lot of opposition to the church. So as we follow along in Acts, we'll see the power of God. We'll see the power of God establishing his church in very unlikely places among very unlikely people. And what we'll constantly see is that wherever the gospel goes, wherever God's messengers goes, wherever the church gets established, trouble is stirred up. In fact, they are often charged with this crime of stirring up trouble, of troubling the peace of Rome. And so they were, in a sense, troublemakers, but this is the charge brought against the church. These are actually often the legal charges brought against the church. And so Luke is writing this gospel or this Acts, in a sense, to defend against that charge. The church are troublemakers. Wherever they go, they stir up trouble. And Luke is going to show time and time again that no, in fact, often, he'll show this repeatedly throughout the book, that while the church may be charged with troublemaking, there are many instances where after the charges are brought, the authorities have to apologize to the Christians. We were wrong. And so Luke writes this book as an apology, a defense, vindicating that The gospel is true, the apostles are right, the church is good, and in fact, it's often the world that's wrong. And along the way, then, we realize that we Christians are going to have to suffer, and often unjustly. That we are going to be accused of doing things that we haven't done, and we should expect it. Of course, is what Christ said. He was treated like this. How can you expect any different? If they treat the master like this, how much more is students? And so, let this be a good word to you, brothers and sisters, in this sense. Why are so many Christians so hot and bothered in the collar that, that we're uh, finding opposition? Isn't this what it's always been? Why would it be any different for us? And so, as if you had a good mom, she said to you, quit your whining. <laughs> Have faith in God. And maybe in the book of Acts, we'll find courage as believers to not keep our mouths closed, but to proclaim repentance and forgiveness of sins in the name of Jesus Christ, as they did over and over and over again, and suffered greatly for it. So that's Acts in a nutshell. Our text this morning, chapter 1, verses 1 to 11, is in two parts. You see that the headings given, verses 1 to 5, are the first part. Here we have a review, brief review of the time between Christ's resurrection and the 40-day period until his ascension. So the emphasis there is Christ is alive. There's been many witnesses, and he is preparing them for his departure and their being sent out for mission. Then in verses 6 to 11, we do get this call to mission. Their curiosity needs to be restrained. They ask this question in verse 6, and they're given a gentle rebuke. The mission is restated, and that they're to wait until the promise of God's power has come upon them, and then Christ ascends. 
what I want to do now in this sermon, in, in, in these, looking at these verse, uh, first 11 verses, is first of all, see in our text that the church is built by God's power and that what Christ is doing is creating a new humanity. The church is Adam and Eve part two. The church is Israel being reformed as one, Jew and Gentile. We are the promises fulfilled from the Old Testament. The promises to create a new humanity in Christ. And so what I want you to do is see the great importance of the church. That we are a unique institution on the face of this earth. And that we of all have God as Father, Christ as King, the filling of the Spirit, and we alone are His witnesses. And so the church has mega importance on the face of the earth. Second, after you see that the church is the recreated new witnesses of Christ to bear witness to the end of the earth, what does it mean to be a witness to Christ? That's second. And third, I want you to consider who we're witnesses to. I want you to consider who Christ is in these verses. So first, the exalted place of saved humanity, exalted, the elevated place of the church. So in Genesis 1, you may remember that when God created all things, he created man last as the pinnacle of creation. Nothing was as important as mankind to God in creation. Uh, Nothing else mattered like us. In fact, everything else was made for us. This is one of the things that you were tempted to disbelieve in the world, that we're just like so much protoplasm as everything else. In fact, we are intent on saving the whales, which, amen, save them, but we don't care so much about destroying unborn human beings in the wombs. And so mankind matters greatly. We alone bear the image of God. God alone gave us the charge to be caretakers of this world, not even caretakers, subduers, exercising dominion as kings and queens over it. We have been given this authority by God himself on earth. God in heaven rules this earth through his people. We see that in Genesis 1, the exalted place of humanity. Among all of glorious creation, man is the greatest glory. And so when we read things like in Psalm 8-4, what is man that you are mindful of him? This is the psalmist, a believer, expressing this wonder, looking at all creation, the glories of creation, and then considering mankind and saying, oh my goodness, look at this world, and why are you so mindful of us? And he's reflecting Genesis 1 and 2, the the high, exalted place of humanity. You made us a little lower than the angels, and yet crowned us with glory and honor. We've lost this truth of humanity, of the glory and goodness of it. In the beginning, why have we lost it? Well, because we've fallen from it in sin, haven't we? When we read in Romans 3 that man has fallen short of the glory of God, what we mean is that man has fallen from this exalted place in sin. We who are image bearers, creating the likeness of God to exercise dominion over the earth, this glorious position, we've fallen from it. We desire to be like God. We, we're not content with 
the position God had placed us in, crazy as it may sound, we're just like Adam and Eve. We desired more. We desired to be like God. We were deceived by the devil and fell in sin. And so you and I and all of humanity are no longer what we were. If you're ever going to understand who we are, you have to understand these two facts. Made in the image of God to rule over the earth and yet fallen from it in sin and so greatly disfigured. Don't you find that true in your experience? Isn't that true? You see in humanity this incredible worth and value and yet so degraded. So capable of incredible evil against each other and against all creation. So made with great dignity and glory and now greatly degraded. So this is why the church is given and the apostles and the prophets consistently preach about sin. Calling us to see from the great height with which we've fallen and how we've offended our creator and our sustainer. So the church is consistently to preach on sin so we might see how much we need Christ. So what God promised then, after man had fallen from his glorious height, after man had come under God's wrath, we see God's promise of restoration. Immediately in the Bible, we see it in Genesis chapter 3, God promising to Eve that one of her offspring would crush the head of the, the serpent, the devil, and that he himself would be bruised. A promise that through him, humanity would find restoration. That promise is repeated to Abraham. I'll give you a descendant, a son, and through him will come blessing to all nations, restoration blessings, recreated humanity blessings. I'm going to make humankind again. I'm going to bring them back from where they've fallen. I'm going to bring them back to the place that they were before through a son. And so we have this consistent promise of a redeemed humanity. Again, through the Jews, through the tribe of Judah, salvation would come to all nations. God would remake what is lost. And of course, his son comes, the promise. The promised son of Eve, the descendant of Abraham, the one who would reign on the throne of David over all, a kingdom extending from every place to every place. And so Christ is that new humanity. Christ is true Israel. But the, the twist in the plot is, we think that when Christ comes, it's over. When Christ would come, the promises would all kind of explode then and there. He would conquer it all. And we would just kind of sit in the stands watching as our great hero goes forth in of his own power and does all of the work and we come behind him reaping all the reward. That's not how he did it. He came. He suffered in our place the wrath of God that we deserve for our sin. He died suffering the cost of our sin, the wage of sin is death. He was buried and yet he was resurrected. He was raised up from the dead because he in himself had no sin and he went into the grave in order to conquer it on our behalf. And then you'd think, okay, Jesus paid the penalty. Jesus resurrected from the dead. 
And so this question of the apostles in verse 6, Lord, will you at this time restore the kingdom of Israel? You can imagine their expectation, right? You can imagine they're thinking, it's on now. He died, we, we were despairing, we thought it was over, and then he's raised. <laughs> he's going to kick some butt now. You're going to do it now, Jesus? You're going to unleash your power, you're going to show your glory, you're going to stomp your enemies. No, he's going to establish a church through 12 misfits. And they're going to go preaching the gospel. Preaching. (laughs) That's it. That's it. That's the plan. I'm going to leave. I'm going to go. You're not going to see me again until the end. I'm going. You're my witnesses. You. You kids that were hiding in an upper room in Jerusalem. You just wait. I'm going to send my Holy Spirit. You nobodies, you farmers, you little people from little places, you men of Galilee. Here's how we're going to win. In the coming centuries, you're going to preach my gospel. Period. I'm going to restore the kingdom through you, through my church. See, what God is constantly doing in the Bible is doing things in a way that we would never do them, doing things in a way that highlights our weaknesses so that he gets all the glory. Of course Jesus could have restored the kingdom at that time. He just walked out of the grave. This would not break a sweat on his brow. He just went toe-to-toe with death and, and won. Of course he could do it. But he chooses to establish his church, us, and give us one thing, the preaching of the word and the power of the Holy Spirit, and that's the plan. That's the way he's going to bring the kingdom to bear. We pray, may your will be done on earth as heaven, your kingdom come. And often like the disciples, we want it now. But it will be through the preaching of the gospel by a renewed humanity of the church that the kingdom comes. And so here's this first point. We are that church. We are that renewed humanity in Christ. We are the people alone that is given the kingdom and the glory and the power in the preaching of the gospel of Christ's resurrection and ascension and reign over all things. We are Adam and Eve. We are the descendants of Abraham by faith. We are true and new Israel. We are the most important reality on this globe. Not because of us, of course, but because of our king. Do you see yourselves as that? Now, when I say that, I don't mean you as an individual. I definitely don't mean that as you as individuals. About myself, of course, but not about you. You aren't that good. 
when we talk about these things in Acts, we'll always see it's the church corporate. Particularly when we gather. We matter because we are Christ's glory on this globe. We matter because we alone are the pillar of his truth, of his gospel. That's why the church matters so much. We are here for his glory, to be his witnesses. So this is our purpose. This is why we're here. And lest we like think, well, I can never attain that. No, no, no. The way that we live that out it is, in, is just our little ways, our little lives, our little parenting, our little jobs, our little gatherings Sunday after Sunday, our little neighborhood small groups, our little prayers for each other, our little Monday caring for foster family meals. This is how we work this out. And yet the God in the heavens, through his Son, by the power of the Holy Spirit, brings his kingdom to earth. Through us. And so why don't you gather more faithfully with each other? There's nothing more important than this. This is it. And so I want, what I'm trying to do in your brain is have you connect Genesis 1 and 2 to us. We are that new humanity. To connect all of the promises to Abraham, to you, to us connect all of the promises to David and through the prophets to us. All of the promises God has made are yes and amen through Christ and his church. Do you understand what I'm getting at? The church matters. And it's, it's not, not, not because we're so good. It's not because we're so strong. It's not because we have such political clout. It's not because we're so rich. Because we're Christ's. Because we are under Him, in Him. So we're His witnesses. That's the second point. We're His witnesses. What does that mean? Well, look at, if you would, verse 8 again. You will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you. You will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and Judea and Samaria and to the end of the earth. So we are His witnesses. A light bulb disconnected from its power source can do nothing, right? The moon has no light unless it reflects the far greater and more glorious sun. And so when Christ says, you will see power when the Holy Spirit comes upon you, he wants us to remember that the power isn't latent in us. We are his witnesses by the power of God. And so we see first the great weakness of the church. Even though we are, in humanity, the most important institution here, we aren't in ourselves anything. None of these apostles that we'll meet here are anything in regards to worldly clout. None of them. None of them. They're all from little places 
They all have little jobs. None of them have wealth. None of them have political connections. Like They are the people you would pick last in the kickball game. Sorry to those of you who were picked last and that brought up bad memories. (laughs) These guys were nothing. And not only are these guys nothing, the means, the tools that Christ has given them to go out and be his witnesses are preaching and the church gathers, practicing baptism, Lord's Supper, and serving each other in love. That's it. That's, that's what they're given to go and bring the kingdom of God to earth. Nobody people with the gathering of the church to worship and the preaching of his word, the right practice of baptism, Lord's Supper, and our love for each other. That's it. That's going to conquer the world. And so we're very weak which will make it very plain that the power belongs to God. You will receive power. The power of God, the power of God that spoke light into darkness, the the power of God that raises the dead. It's His power. And so parents, the power to rescue your children from their sin is God's and not yours. There's no cookie-cutter approach to saving your kids. There's no engineering flow chart or spreadsheet. There is only God's powerful grace. Dear saints, those that you love in your life, family members, co-workers, friends who are outside of the kingdom of God that you don't want to see perish in hell, the power to save them is not yours. It is alone God's. But it is God's power through us as witnesses. Never in the Bible do we see God's power in working disconnected from his people. Sometimes we want to say, if God has intended so-and-so to be saved, and he's, a, and, and, and he's intended me to do it, if I don't do it, will that person be saved? You ever thought that, asked that? I've been asked that. You know what that answer is? No. Yes. No, the normal way that God brings unbelieving sinners to faith is through others proclaiming the gospel in their life and with their words. He always uses his people, his church. But it's his power. So the church is established on his power, and we are his witnesses. You will be my witnesses. We belong to him. Christ is the head of the church. We are his witnesses. Isn't that an incredible thing to be, brothers and sisters? Can you imagine a, is there anything better to be named? You have names in your life. You wear different hats, we say. Husband, wife, father, mother, church member, engineer, carpenter. Cobbler. Whatever these hats are you wear. And the most important reality about it is that you are the witness of Jesus Christ. That's the most important reality about you. 
What a precious calling. What a wonderful responsibility. Frightening. We matter, though, in Christ's mission. We need Christ, don't we? And in a far lesser and different way, He needs us. He has made it that way in His kingdom. That His kingdom will come through His church. And so we are witnesses. His witnesses. We were once dead in sin and trespasses, enslaved to the passions of our flesh, children of wrath, that He has made alive by His great mercy and love so that we might walk in the good deeds that He has prepared for us to be His witnesses to His glory. Christ is very careful to tell us that He did not take us out of the world but left us here so that through our love and unity the world may see that Christ is one with the Father. That's what we're here for. That's what Acts is all about. Little churches, little places, little people filled with the power of the Holy Spirit, proclaiming the gospel by faith and seeing the world change. Your little lives, our little church, matters greatly to his kingdom. So, we are the new humanity. There is great importance placed in the church. We are Christ's witnesses going by his power in great weakness. And third, we are Christ's witnesses. We are witnesses to Christ. Jesus Christ is the eternal Son of God. You all seem kind of dull this morning. Are you tired? Jesus Christ is the eternal Son of God, the second member of the Trinity, the creator and sustainer of the universe, the God who somehow mysteriously became man, who redeemed humanity from their sins. He was resurrected from the dead. He ascended to heaven and sits at the right hand of God the Father Almighty, and he judges and rules over all things. And you are his witness. (laughs) It's like the greatest joke in the universe, isn't it? That we are his witnesses. To him, to that being. And so it's all about him, isn't it? How can we rob glory from him? How could we dare think that we're more important than him? So the gospel that we're witnesses to is the gospel of what the Lord Jesus did and what the Lord Jesus taught in verse 1. I have dealt with all that Jesus began to do and to teach. What did he do? Oh, he said it repeatedly. He died, he rose, he ascended, and he reigns. And we are witnesses to that. Now the people that he's referring to here, you will be my witnesses, were actually the eyewitnesses. They saw it. They saw his life, his ministry. They saw his miracles. They heard his teaching and kept a record. They saw him arrested. They saw him nailed to a cross. They saw his dead body taken down and put in the tomb. They saw the tomb empty. They saw him resurrected. They met with him over a 40-day period, eating with him, talking with him, touching him. They saw him ascend on the clouds up to heaven. They saw it. They heard it. They gave us, by the power of the Holy Spirit, an accurate 
accounting of it. God has been faithful to preserve it for us. And so now we're his witnesses. And so this means that our witness depends on the word of God. Your and my witness depends on the eternally inspired word of God. We have to deal with what Jesus taught. We are to be people of this book. We have been given the eternally inspired scriptures for these purposes, that we might not suffer the penalty of death, but might turn to Christ. That we might live our lives growing in repentance and obedience to all that Jesus has taught, and that we might tell others to do the same. Husbands, that's what you're for, your wives for. That they might see your love for Jesus Christ, your Lord, and your growing obedience to him and repentance. Wives, this is what submission to your husband will look like. That you love Christ. And that you care to grow in humble submission to your Savior. Parents, this is what for to your children. Siblings, this is what you're for to each other. Small group members, this is why you'll gather this afternoon. Or on Tuesday or Thursday or Friday or whatever day you gather so that you can bear witness to others of your sincere love for Jesus Christ, of your growing obedience to Him and service to each other. And so, this gets, to bring it full circle, to the mark of a true church. Are you aware that there are such a thing as true churches and churches that are no longer true and faithful? That there are churches that have departed from their Savior, though they still name Him. And do you know what the difference is? It's fidelity to Christ through His Word. That's it. We are witnesses of Christ. This is why the church exists. And so long as we remain faithful and true to the witness of Christ's Word, we are His faithful and true church. And where we depart from that, We lock the faith and the love of Christ and so depart from the truth of his word. We no longer exist as the true church, but as has been said throughout the history of the church, we become a synagogue of Satan, a den of demons. We lie about the creator and redeemer. And brothers and sisters, it must never be so here. We would rather suffer death, as many of them did, for the sake of his word, than ever fudge on one word of it. So young kids, this is why God has you in his sovereign good plan here to be brought up under his word that you might give your heart and soul and life to it. That even if your dad would ever teach something false or separate it all from God's word, you would rather obey God than your own father. Because you love Christ. That's what we're here for. So children, do you love God's word? Worker at work. Is it evident to others that you love Christ and his word? And, and like this, Jesus said, 
Go therefore, make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe everything that I've commanded you. And what? I am with you always till the end of the age. Christ, dear brothers and sisters, take great comfort in knowing this, has not left us without his presence. He is here by the power of his Holy Spirit. He is here through the preaching, proclamation of his word. He is here through the presence of other believers. So we are never left alone. Christ has provided for his beloved church in every way. He has done it so that we can continue to bear witness to his glory. Let's pray. Father, help us to apply these things head to toe. We talk of great things. We talk of high things. We talk of wonderful things. And yet, God, these things are meant to be lived. They're meant to be applied in our waking moments and our little internal thoughts and our hundreds of little interactions with others and the decisions we make. And so, God, help us to apply these things. Would your Holy Spirit do it? God, bring us under conviction of conscience that nothing matters like your church. And that the work you've given us, that there's no greater work than to be your witness. And that whatever you've given us to do, all of the other good works might be done for that one thing. And so, God, forgive us where we fall short and strengthen us by the power of your Holy Spirit to do that which will bear right witness to Christ. And in everything, that we might tell the truth, we might work hard with our own hands, that we might ask forgiveness for when we fail, that we might not forsake the gathering together of the saints. And so, Father, teach us to live these things to your glory. In Jesus' name, amen.